Escape from Plan A. This is Roger Ebert. Sooner or later, everyone who loves movies gets to the work of Yasujiro Ozu, the great Japanese master who was born in 1903 and died in 1963 on his birthday, December the 12th. It may be of interest, as Richie points out, that Ozu probably drank more than any other major director, and when he was writing screenplays, uh, he actually charted the progress of the screenplay by how many bottles of sake he and his collaborator had gone through. Hi, and welcome to Escape from Plan A, Plan A Magazine's podcast. And tonight we have a very special episode with two very special guests from Cinema Escapist, Anthony and Richard. How are you doing, guys? This is Anthony. I'm doing pretty good. Hi, this is Richard. I'm doing great. And again, like a, a episode a couple of days, a couple of episodes ago, very international. Richard, you are in Hong Kong, are you not? Yeah, this is Richard. I'm in Hong Kong. Again, Plan A Empire expanding, this time eastward. <laughs> I think this is the first time we had a uh, guest on that was like live in Asia. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, right? you think yeah. we'd... Yeah, about time, don't you think? We're all like almost 40 episodes in. We finally have yeah. a guest from Asia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're here to talk tonight about just some Asian films we all love. And we think uh, this is an important topic just because we talk a lot about Asian... Uh, just like familiarity with Asian culture. And uh, so Cinema Escapist is a site that focuses a lot on international cinema. So hey, why, why don't you guys talk about your site? Um, Anthony, you want to tell us more about what Cinema Escapist is and how you guys came up with it? Yeah, sure. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cinema Escapist. And we started back in the fall of 2014 as Richard and I were starting to get into the workforce and really wanted to find a intellectual outlet for an interest that we've had for a little while, which was watching films from other countries and being of Asian heritage and you know having linguistic expertise in the area as well as some academic background. Um, a lot of Asian films really came to mind and we started writing more and more reviews and we've really grown over the years and we don't actually just have Asia, we have other regions of the world as well, such as Africa, and have an overall mission to really explore and connect the world through a cinematic lens. And what that means is that we see cinema as this great way where when people go into try to watch a movie or a TV show, they are opening their minds. They want to see a world that's either different from their own or reimagination of their own world. And we think that by highlighting these international movies and by talking about their social and their political context, we can really bridge cultures and bring the world closer together. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, I also forgot to mention Teen is also on this podcast, but you know he's he's on like every podcast, so we we don't really care, right? Yeah, I'm just hanging <laughs> in the I'm just hanging out in the corner, man. You know. <laughs> um. Yeah, and Richard, uh, neither of you guys are are though like filmmakers, right? This is purely out of just like passion and love out of your hearts. All of us have uh, day jobs, kind of uh, working in the tech industry. Uh, but I think all of us kind of have a passion, um, both for learning more about uh, the Asian side of our heritage, as well as, you know, contributing uh, in kind of an intellectual way to to the world. Um, you know, a lot of us see uh, how the world is getting a little more divided these days and people, um, you know, don't really understand each other as much. And we think it's critical that in an increasingly a globalized economy, people are able to connect and understand with cultures other than their own. Um, cinema, I think, is a great way to do that because you know movies and TV shows often reflect 
the social political context um, in in the countries and the cultures in which they're made. Yeah, well, actually, I'll just yeah, add to that. We we have fifteen folks, and not everyone is in tech. Richard and I do work in the tech industry, but we have people who are in Africa, uh, who are in the UK, working as film researchers. We have people who are writing comic books and trying to get them published. So really trying to get a diversity of perspectives in terms of people who might not be in film but can provide other contexts to really enrich their perception of film. Yeah, and Tina's written a couple of reviews for you guys. That is correct. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. I, I, I mean, I, I really like the... Um, I just really like the focus of the website on... It seems like you guys really want to uh, tease out it seems like some sort of uh, social or political significance of these films rather than just looking at the film, you know, within the, you know, within the boundaries of the start to finish and, and, and just the craft of the film, which I like, because I think, you know, if you're not looking at that context then I feel like international film, uh, you're missing a big part of it, which is to sort of understand the world a little bit. I mean, this is Anthony. I think you've really hit it on the great thing to say here and really connects back to what Oxford was saying about how, yeah, here we at Cinemascapists, not all of us come from a formal film background, but I think that what in, that enables us to do is to bring in more of the social and the political context. And Richard and I, especially being Asian American and Richard living in Asia, I actually studied um, Chinese history when I was in undergraduate uh, studies. Um, we are more naturally able to, with our heritage and with that sort of context, talk about the social and the political background to a lot of these films and make them more accessible, to make them not just these esoteric, artistic things that you know, old people watch, but something that can be really relevant to audiences around the world, especially those who are you know, of a younger age or not necessarily super big film buffs. Yeah, and I think as Asian Americans, so much of our education about our kind of like ancestral homelands comes through uh, the, like cinema and, and television and, and things like that. Um, so how did you guys f first get into Asian cinema? Uh, Richard, we can start with you. Uh, I think from a young age, um, I was always quite into kind of Asian media in general. Uh, growing up, I had read a lot of manga, watched a lot of anime, uh, and kind of as I went into middle school and high school, a lot of my friends were into kind of Korean dramas, K-pop. That was kind of peak of that uh, Korean wave um, at the time. I also, you know, I had actually spent some time in China um, in my earlier years, and I kind of always uh, had a bit of a connection to, to Chinese movies with you know all of my relatives and uh, all the trips I was making there for family reasons. Um, <clears throat> and so when I went into college, I started you know trying to get access to some more Chinese movies and really found it hard to be able to watch all these movies that all my relatives and friends in China were talking about. I actually ended up uh, doing a summer internship in Shanghai. I got to watch uh, a lot of Chinese movies there. Um, and you know, later on, I, I realized that Chinese cinema, although it wasn't quite, um, I think, as developed at the time as Korean, um, maybe the Korean uh, media, um, it was really evolving and there was uh, a lot of huge opportunity. Um, I ended up moving uh, to China uh, after, um, you know, after a while. And, and that really got me um, the opportunity to be able to watch all these movies literally as they were coming out. Um, and then I realized, you know, for I think especially for an Asian American audience, there's a bit of a unique perspective that you can have when you're able to, um, you know, kind of explore 
cinema that's from the other half of you know a, uh, the Asian American heritage, right? Uh, from the Asian half of the heritage. Yeah. Oh, before we go on to you, Anthony, I think uh, listeners should know that recently, Richard, you were on the BBC, were you not, to talk about uh, a certain Chinese movie? I, I, f- I forget which one it was. What was it again? Uh, the movie was Dying to Survive. Um, so I was on the BBC to talk about, you know, some of uh, what the movie was about, but also some of the views that viewers in China might have had. Uh, the movie is actually about um, this uh, aphrodisiac salesman that smuggles in um a life-saving cancer drug from India uh, to all these cancer patients in China that can't afford uh, the medication. And, uh, you know, I think it really hit a thread with Chinese viewers because, you know, number one, it's actually based off of a real story. There was actually an individual who was uh, smuggling in a generic version of a, of a very expensive drug in China that wasn't approved by Chinese authorities. And, um, you, you know, I think over the last five to six years, the the cost of um, the cost of healthcare has been rising in China. But there's also been a lot of discussion around fake medicine. I mean, just very recently, there's this big scandal around fake vaccines uh, being given out in China. And so I think the the whole kind of pharma industry's uh, been a hot topic. Um, and like I said in my interview, you know, one really uh, review on Douban, which is like a Chinese movie review site, um, that really stood out to me is. Someone said the only true illness is being poor. Um, I guess it's, you know, for, for a historically communist country that's, you know, recently become incredibly capitalist, it, it's, uh, it's a message that I think really struck a chord with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be putting that interview in the reference resources in the podcast description. Um, so, Anthony, moving on to you, how did you get into Asian movies? I really got into Asian movies also by virtue of family background and heritage. I grew up in a Taiwanese-American family and would go back to Taiwan pretty often, almost every summer, and it would be a pretty normal occurrence just to watch movies or TV shows from Taiwan with my family. And then also while in Taiwan, if you just turn on the TV, a lot of things are in um, the Mandarin language or Taiwanese dialect. So it just felt very normal. It didn't necessarily feel foreign because it was just what we did. Now. Moving into high school, middle school, college, I think that one thing to note is that Richard and I grew up in the Bay Area where there's a significant Asian American population, Asian immigrant population, and as a result, the schools that we went to had a pretty large proportion of um, you know, Asians, and as a result, I felt that I got a lot of recommendations from friends about Asian media. I had a Korean friend who recommended me The Host, Old Boy, some of those classics back then. And as I started watching media from East Asia, it seemed to resonate more than a lot of American media did. One example that I love to think of is I remember for some reason we were forced to watch High School Musical in PE class. And it just <laughs> felt, yeah, I, I don't know why. I mean, that's our tax dollars at work, um, having kids watch High School Musical. But it just felt so foreign to me, because that was not what high school was like for me. But then when I did watch, there's this Korean drama called Master of Study about this lawyer who becomes 
like a tutor for these these kids who are struggling in high school and helps them prepare for the college entrance exams and just documents that journey. I was like, wow, yeah, that was that was pretty much what my high school was like, sans the lawyer and all, <laughs> but really about the test prep experience and getting into college. So um, yeah. that, that, that I think from the growing up perspective really just normalized Asian media, but then also helped me explore some other, you know, I started watching German movies and movies from other countries. And I, as I started going into college, um, that I, I started taking a class uh, about Taiwanese film and literature, actually, which became the seed and the inspiration for trying to look at film in a more concerted manner and trying to tie in that social and political aspect of things. Teen, I don't know about you, but like I started getting more into Asian Asian cinema just because I was just like so bored with American movies, especially with the rise of like the the cinematic universe shit. Because um, I, you know, I, I hate these like Marvel movies. Um, you oh, you mean you mean like the the the, the Marvel cinematic universe? Yeah, and, and Star as, Wars as, as and that just takes up so much of our it's like attention space. Yeah, I saw like Wonder Woman. It sucked. Uh, I saw Black Panther. It was like meh. Um, uh, and you, know, all, all you haters can come at, come at me on Twitter, but you know I'm right. And, and like <laughs> Black Panther was supposed to be one of the better ones. I don't even want to know what a mediocre um, movie in that in that uh, whole library looks like. So you know, you, I just you just kind of have to look elsewhere. And then like, coincidentally, it also just helps you kind of reconnect with with like your culture and your like parents, um, their like lived experience. So. Yeah, I mean, Teen, how did you get into all of it? Uh, my my family has. It sounds like my family has a pretty similar background to to, to Anthony's. Uh, and uh, I would go back to Taiwan a lot too when I was a kid. And and I remember Anthony, like we would, uh, my cousins and I, we would go to the local video shop and renting videos in Taiwan back then. This was like you know in the nineties. It was like super cheap. And my cousins, they, I didn't even. They were like taking out you know fifteen twenty videos at a time. You know, and uh, we'd be watching these Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies and stuff. And there were just these crazy action movies like, you know, um, I forgot, you know, just ones that have not come out here. You know, like, um, you know, we we know the big John Woo ones, but there were just ones I'd never seen. And, and the people in them were so cool, you know, and the, you know, just everything was so much cooler in its own sort of Asian way than than a lot of the uh, sort of cheesy overwrought American action movie. So I just started, you know, when when um someone who caught wind of this uh was Quentin Tarantino, right? Like I think t- when Tarantino quote discovered Hong Kong cinema, you know, for me I was like, yeah, it's about time that someone, <laughs> you know, popularized <laughs> this stuff, you know, yeah, I mean, I this is nothing new to me. Um uh, but then later on, um yeah, I mean again echoing what Anthony said, like um I think there was a movie I think both of us really liked. It was uh, Edward Yang's uh E E right? It is it's a fantastic movie. Why E E is like Y I Y I. Great movie, worth really worth watching. And I think the reason that I really liked it as I watched it um was like, oh, see, this is what my parents were talking about. Like every time that they're talking to you know, my aunts or uncles about this gossipy shit or whatever. Like, I've always been curious about what they were talking about. And when I watched this movie, EE, I was like, oh, okay, so this is how the family drama in Taiwan kind of is, you know. And I think it's worth watching movies by people from backgrounds that are kind of similar to your parents to get an idea, a much better idea of where you're coming from. Because, no, you know, your parents are never going to take the time to really tell their story the way that a great filmmaker is going to tell that story. 
So it can kind of stand in a little bit to get a sense of where you come from and, and things like that. It was very effective in that way. Um, okay, so let's get to uh, what the what the main point of this episode is, is to give some recommendations by our Cinema Escapist experts on some movies that they recommend that what everybody should watch, but especially maybe Asian Americans. So Richard, why don't you give us some of your picks and why you think they're good? Yeah, uh, one of the movies I watched in the last year that I think really stood out to me was uh, Wolf Warrior 2. Uh, and it's about a uh, kind of disgraced uh, Chinese Special Forces veteran who's living in Africa um, as a private contractor. Um, and, and then a civil war erupts there uh, in this un- unnamed African country. And he has to bring a group of both African and Chinese civilians uh, to safety. Um, I think it's really cool because it's this uh, kind of very American style action movie, kind of like Rambo almost. Um, but with a really strong uh, Chinese uh, male lead cast as the hero of the story. Um, and I think for a lot of Asian Americans that have struggled to see, um, you know, really strong uh, character, uh, Asian American character leads in Hollywood, um, you know, this movie really shows us that you can look towards uh, some Asian movies to find that strong Asian representation. Yeah, that, that's one that's quite well known in like Asian American discussion circles. It was a huge hit in China and, it uh you know i think like publications like the new yorker wrote about it almost in kind of an alarmist way like whoa um you know like like the, these chinese they're like getting the hang of this like kind of like jingoist action movie you know, you know the americans were the masters <laughs> of it for a while but uh you know other people have are catching up the lead uh, i think his name is uh it's um wu jing right he's he's excellent and i yeah i i, I watched that too and i i would i would second that just because i would say like the action in that is, you know, it's, there's a lot of like, there's not a lot of CGI in it. And there's this tank, like in particular, that tank battle, you know, which one I'm talking about, Richard, in the end. Um, that was amazing. I would say like, it just, it, it, it did seem like one of those old school action movies where they were actually doing the thing that you were watching rather than, you know, a, a ton of cuts and uh, CGI and stuff. So yeah, I would second that. Yeah. Wu Jing actually is a stunt actor and he actually uh, does actually a lot of the stunt coordination in these films too. So that's actually what makes one of these, these movies really cool. Yeah. I just want to add a note about this whole, as Oxford mentioned, this foreign intervention, epic style of things. That's something that we've been covering quite a bit on cinema escapist, actually, even beyond Wolf Warrior two, I think Richard, you've done a couple of other articles and I won't get too much into detail there, but if I were to think about trends for 2017, like the foreign action military intervention epic was like this trend of Chinese cinema in 2017, and maybe there'll be even more stuff that we see um, in the coming years. Was that true also of other countries? You know, I, I don't actually see the foreign intervention epic happening that much in other Asian countries. Um, The only other example that I might think of is for Korea, Descendants of the Sun, the drama which came out in 2016, was interesting in that it showed an overseas deployment of Korean forces, but that wasn't as... they, They weren't like shooting things up and doing tank battles like the Chinese were doing Wolf Warrior 2. I was actually uh, asking more about non-Asian countries, maybe countries that have recently, um, you know, has more kind of like interventionist ambitions, um, specifically places like Russia or Turkey, maybe. Maybe that's like other people at Cinema Escapist have been watching those films. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, we, we don't have as much coverage in Russia and Turkey, so if anyone listening to this is interested, we'd love to have more people write <laughs> about those regions. Anecdotally, from just my scanning of the general world film landscape, um, Russia, Russia did come up with a its own Avengers movie called Guardians, where... No you, way. Yeah, this, this came out, I think, 2017 or 2016, but... There's a bear as part of the trio. Like, that's so quintessentially Russian. I, I don't think it, like, got the best reviews, but it was fascinating to see, and I still have to find a way to see that. But there there hasn't been necessarily as much of, you know, foreign intervention directly for Russia or, you know, Turkey. I think that for Russia especially, the geopolitical tilt for them is more like a having a more multipolar world as opposed to having russia be like a new world policeman and b more having it so that um you know their whole narrative is about protecting ethnic russians which to a certain extent gets reflected into the chinese narrative but um you know it's somewhat uh it's not as expressed in cinema i would say Mm -hmm. richard how are we doing for time do you have to leave now uh, I can go for a couple more minutes, maybe talk about uh, one or two more movies. All right, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving on, um, I think another movie I'd really recommend is uh, this movie called My Old Classmate. Um, and it's actually, you know, starts off as a bit more of a typical coming of age, uh, going to college kind of romance movie. But there's a big twist in that um, the male lead actually moves to America um, to kind of chase the American dream. And he's in New York you know, working in this very typical Manhattan office. Um, and he's like imagining uh, how great his life is. Um, but in reality, he's actually working at a job where his boss is yelling at him every day. He's living in, you know, uh, a really kind of slummy apartment. Um, and it's almost like he saw his hopes and dreams shattered, um, trying to make it in the big city. Um, I think this is kind of a cool movie for, an you know, an Asian American to watch because it's almost um, a narrative that could resonate with, um, with, um, an Asian American audience, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not very politically driven at all. It's, um, you know, I was actually living in New York when I first saw this movie and I thought, Hey, this is in a way I almost kind of can relate to this character. Right. Oh yeah. No, I'm relating it. I've never heard of it. And I'm already uh, relating to it just based on your description. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. I got to watch that. All right. <laughs> yeah. This is actually, I think it's actually available on, um, Google play or, um, Amazon video. So it's actually uh, maybe a little bit more accessible just from a logistical perspective. There, there was a, I remember there was a show, like a mini series a while ago. This is like, you know, in the nineties or something about a guy, I think it was a couple that moves to New York as well. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can link to it or something like that, but it was like, apparently it was like super popular in China. Is this, is there like curiosity in China or in Asia generally about like, you know, life in America and what it would be like if people moved there? Because that oh, was yeah. like, yeah. I think there's definitely a lot of curiosity because there is this whole generation um, that kind of grew up in the, you know, came of age in the 80s, moved to America in the 90s. And now, you know, you back then China was not a very wealthy country. But, you know, these days there's a lot of successful people that kind of stayed in China. And I actually think one of the reasons movies like My Old Classmate and there were a kind of a, a couple of other movies that, had a very similar kind of plot line. It, I think one of the reasons it resonated well in China was it was actually telling the story of maybe some of our parents' generation. Um, 
my dad actually also watched this movie and he really enjoyed it. And he said this is almost kind of like his story uh, when when he first moved to America as well. Yeah, and that's a really important point, I think, because especially as uh, like second generation Asian Americans, a lot of us don't know our parents' stories, and a lot of times our parents don't want to tell us. <laughs> uh, so the only way we can really learn is is w- by watching these movies, and then we get the sense, oh, you know what, our parents were also young, just like us, and they went on dates, and you know, they went out to get ice cream and played baseball or soccer, and yeah, it, it's really cool to watch that. Cool. Um... I unfortunately have to bounce now. Really enjoyed this. Um, talk to you guys soon. Yeah, good talking to you, man. So unfortunately, the the crazy Hong Kong lifestyle has consumed uh, Richard, and he had to depart a bit early. But that means more time for Anthony to talk. So Anthony, why don't you give us some of your recommendations? All right. Well, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, craziness to inject into the conversation to make up for what Richard took away. But I'll start off with a pretty good movie that came out last year, and and my recommendations are all going to be fairly recent, just to make these pretty accessible to anyone who wants to watch them and this first movie is called a taxi driver and it comes from korea it came out in august of last year and it is inspired by the true story of a taxi driver as the title would suggest to help smuggle out footage of this really important event in modern korean history which is called the Gwangju uprising which happened back in May 1980. It was this pivotal moment where in the southern city of Gwangju, there were people protesting against the military dictatorship government at that time. And the military was sent in and fired upon the civilians. And there's a German journalist who went in with this taxi driver and managed to get footage. And this taxi driver ferried him out, got the journalist out of, out of, Guangzhou and then, you know, help the journalist get back to, uh, I think he was based in Japan to get the footage broadcast to the rest of the world. And that's part of the reason why we actually know about stuff that happened in this event. And I think that this is something that I really would recommend to Asian Americans, because as Oxford was saying before, there's a lot of intergenerational connection value to a lot of these Asian movies. As one example, we we're actually in the process there's i have a friend who's a korean american who's writing an article for us at cinema escapist uh, about this movie because his father and a lot of his family members were in guangzhou at this time and watching this movie he actually watched it with his dad was a way to really connect and spark these conversations about like oh whoa like a he didn't actually know that this event had happened and b now that he had known and had this way to really connect with his dad, he was able to talk with his dad, his aunt, and learn about his own family's story as it related to the Gwangju uprising. And even if you're not Korean American, I think that this movie is really relevant in terms of realizing that people from our parents' generation or people in general in Asia over the past few decades really had to go through their own struggle for democracy and that democracy in in East Asia, at least places like Taiwan and Korea, really didn't come free, and a lot of the people who fought for it are still alive. Yeah, I I watched the movie kind of similar to it. It came out, uh, I think, about 10 years ago. Uh, well, in Korean, it's called Haryan Hyuga, which literally translates to something like Wonderful or Splendid Holiday. I think it goes by May 18th in um, English, but it's also about the Gwangju Uprising. And 
you know, I it's like it kind of embarrassing to admit it, but like before I watched that movie, I didn't really know about it. I kind of like heard of it, but um, it was like the first time I really got to sense what it was about. And and Auntie, you brought up how it's important for like a, you don't have to be Korean to you know glean some kind of importance from it. And I agree. And I think the important thing is like there's this myth that I think like the whole like immigration assimilation process in America instills in in Asian Americans that you know, Asian Americans don't really fight back. We come from this very like passive, almost weak society in which we just let shit happen to us. But like, and then like uh, we grow up, especially with our parents telling us. Uh, a lot of us, uh, our parents tell us not to be political and stuff. And I, th- I think American society makes us think it's because Asians are like inherently uh, like submissive and, and shit like that. But no, it's because they probably saw their friends get beaten and maybe even killed in these things. And it really like it lets you get a better sense of of your history and and why maybe your parents are the way they are, which uh, which gets distorted in the whole like immigration process wait so is this movie it's a is it is there a thriller aspect to it where they're trying to smuggle it out like it's uh there's like a little bit of uh, action to it or something there is a bit of dramatic license added in terms of you know making it more like oh gosh there's a car chase at the end where they're trying to elude police and i think the military people who are trying to get this um footage that the german journalist has but there's still a large amount like my friend when he watched it with his dad he was asking his dad so like how much of this is accurate and his dad's like yeah probably like 90 percent um (laughs) so it's still at least according to that account you know i i was not in Gwangju, um so i can't speak for it myself but at least according to that account there's still a fair amount of authenticity even if there is a thriller aspect that makes it both an entertaining and an empathetic movie maybe what i ask is like maybe one day what we could do is like a project where uh every recommendation for like a for an asian movie is is um is is paired with a like a hollywood revisionist bullshit movie like argo that it can replace right because <laughs> <laughs> this sound, i mean like just the surface story sounds a little bit like argo but argo was pure lies right so <laughs> anyone that knows that story was like yeah 90 percent of that was pure fabrication i've never so. seen argo and i've it's completely just disappeared off the cultural relevance landscape uh, there right? were a lot of problems with it afterwards because the canadians it was really a canadian mission and it wasn't the 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 american and cia uh aspects of it were pretty minor but the movie basically centered it around the cia so you as like a as a canadian should be deeply offended by argo <laughs> but like a lot of these like best picture winners they, they just like king speech like who gives a fuck about that movie anymore <laughs> <Yeah>, king <laughs> speech just, <laughs> um it, it's it's ludicrous the any, yeah. anyway um I mean, I'd be happy to keep trashing the Oscars, but we, we've got better things to do. Uh, Anthony, <laughs> uh, another recommendation, please. Yeah. Um, the second recommendation I'll give comes from China, and it is called American Dreams in China. And this is a 2013 movie that's a bit like China's social network. It's based on the true story. Well, it's inspired by the true story of this company called New Oriental Education, which is one of China's biggest education companies. Its founder is now a billionaire who has high connections with the Communist Party. And like a lot of people who come to the U.S. to study go through New Oriental Education to prep for the TOEFL or GRE and learn English. And the movie draws upon this concept. It starts with these three friends in Beijing who 
dream of studying in the U.S. and they're really idealistic about the American dream. One of them is like, if you want to change the world, you have to go to America. And it turns out that only one of them ends up getting a visa to the U.S. and the other two are really devastated, at least initially, but then they turn that misery into this company that is called New Dream in the movie. So, you know, New Oriental, New Dream, um, where they basically use like their misery to teach English really, really compellingly and emotionally to people. And that ends up scaling up to this billion dollar enterprise. Now, the interesting thing about this is really how it shows the Chinese experience in juxtaposition to the US experience. The friend who ends up getting the visa and funnily enough also goes to New York, he's like Columbia, um, gets really disillusioned, becomes really miserable and actually goes back to China to join his friends with this company. Um, and in the movie, which is also based on real life, so in real life, New Oriental got sued by ETS, the people who make the GRE and the TOEFL for plagiarism. Uh, I remember those bastards. Yeah. ETS. Uh, so, Every American student knows the ETS, yep. Yeah, ETS. Um, well, <laughs> but in in the movie, basically, it's, it's this moment where, um, and I'm kind of spoiling it, but I think this movie, like the social network, like you know the company is going to be a success. It's more of the journey that matters. Um, but in the movie, there's this really compelling scene where these Chinese guys who founded a company are sitting across the table from these Americans in New York, and they're like, you don't understand China, like, screw you, you know, we work harder than you, and you just are simply trying to stereotype us. So, and in fact, after that, I think they're like cruising through the streets of New York, flipping people off because they're like, yeah, we're the bosses now. And <laughs> it's this really, it's, it's a fascinating message really about growing assertiveness in China and, you know, an eye-opener for how Chinese people perceive America and the American dream. I think that while the movie provides dramatic license to make it entertaining, there are people who are thinking you know, somewhat similarly to the people who are the protagonists in this movie. There's a lot of international students who come to the U.S., get disillusioned, and go back to China to start really successful companies like JD, uh, or sorry, not JD, I think it was like Pinduoduo, there's that that's a company it's like a group buying company right now where the guy like studied at the university of wisconsin madison and worked at google and now is back and like going to become a billionaire eight times over because this company is going to go ipo somewhat soon um and there's a lot of examples like that of people going back they're called haikui which is like sea turtles <laughs> returning home to china because there's a perception of more opportunity that you don't have to pursue an american dream in america there is a Chinese dream in China. Um, and you know, that's, that's a really important point that I think that if we think about millennials inside of China and, and how to empathize with them and realize like differences and similarities, that's a very um, salient point around like, ambition as well as like finding out what America is like and not finding it so great. That's a great recommendation too. That and the mild classmate, because like, I think one of the things about 
um, Asian movies a lot is it's it's rare to they seem a little bit indifferent to the U.S. to America, uh, and so a lot of times the experience of watching for me like watching Asian movies is like the the like America just doesn't exist. And as an Asian American, you kind of it's it, like when you do get these chances to to peek at attitudes um, about America specifically, I always find that fascinating. I think Ang Lee was. Uh, you know, he, I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy his movies, um, like Wedding Banquet and stuff, but, uh, that sounds like a great wreck. I, I think Asian Americans could, I mean, I'm definitely going to watch it, but I think these kinds of movies, uh, you know, are very valuable in that sense. Yeah. This is Anthony and there's, there's quite a few Chinese movies that really offer a, an outside view of the U.S. My old classmate, as Richard mentioned, is one of them. But there's there's quite a few, both tragic romances, as we like to call movies like My Old Classmate, and also movies like American Dreams in China that aren't romances, where, um, uh, just to name a few, like there's one called Beijing Meets Seattle, which is about anchor babies. It's it's really fascinating, as, as Teen says, to look at this view and be like, wow, okay, like there, there is a way to critically look at America without this sort of like bias of growing up in the United States and seeing how that may compare or contrast with you know, a, a, a very directly American worldview. Yes, so my final recommendation is a movie called Ode to My Father, which came out in 2014. And it is another Korean movie of a historical nature. And I would compare it to Forrest Gump. It's like a Korean Forrest Gump, where there's a South Korean everyman who's the main character, and the movie traces his life from the Korean War in 1950 to the present day. And it goes through, like, he meets the founder of Hyundai, uh, he becomes a guest worker, he goes to Vietnam because this is something that it seems like not a lot of people know this, especially in the US, but Korea contributed a lot of troops and also civilian contractors to the Vietnam War. Um, and, and this movie shows that. And then also, um, you know, another thing that it shows is these family reunions that happened um, decades after the Korean War for family members who got separated from that war. and. The reason why I would recommend this movie is, again, similar to A Taxi Driver, it is this chance that I've seen amongst Korean-American friends, um, especially where you're able to get some intergenerational empathy. I had a Korean-American friend who watched this with his grandma, and this was literally like his grandma's life. Um, going from the Korean War, fleeing during the chaos of it all, going through the industrialization um, of, of South Korea and uh, you know, all the hardships and hard work associated with that. And um, you know, for someone, I'm, I'm not Korean-American, but it was really fascinating for me as like this easy way to learn about Korean history that like if I would, the reason why I compare it to Forrest Gump is I, I remember watching Forrest Gump in U.S. history class because the teacher was like, you know, this is a great way to learn about U.S. history. And I think that it serves the same well, Just like High School Musical was a great way to get exercise in gym, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, better than High School Musical, I'll give you that. Anyway, you were saying? Yeah, well, that, that was actually it. Um, I think that 
you know, great, great way to build intergenerational empathy, great way to learn about Korean history, even if you're not Korean American, in a very entertaining yet comprehensive manner. All right, so we got a good list going there. Watch, watch, watch a Taxi Driver instead of Argo. Watch American Dreams in China, uh, and and just bump the Social Network off your list. And watch Ode to My Father, and and don't bother with Forrest Gump. Nice, nice list. I like it. Two uh, thumbs up. I think we, I think we've already filled up all our listeners' like watch list for the next few months. But uh, Teen, you and I should uh, throw in some of our recs as well, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, so I'm going to step way back in time. Well, not way back, but uh, so to recommend Tokyo Story, which is this uh, great Japanese director named Yasujiro Ozu. His, one of his masterpieces. Um, it was made in 1953, so it's, it's set in post-war Japan. And the story is incredibly simple. It's just about this two um, elderly couple, and they live in the Japanese countryside, but they're taking this kind of like long trip to see their children. The whole story, it's really sad. It's about how their kids, uh, well, they're kids, but they're adults now. They have their own lives. So these kind of like their elderly parents, they treat them like a burden. And, and these parents are like kind of being shuttled back and forth between their various children. And it's just about them trying to keep, trying to be happy in the obvious, in the face of the obvious fact that they're not really wanted. And like the one like truly good character in the movie is their their daughter-in-law who had um, married their son who was killed in, in World War II, but she for some reason uh, still, you know, treats them like her in-laws. And she's the only one who's like truly kind to them. Very simple story, but it's it's heartbreaking. And it's one of those stories, one of those movies that makes you really feel really bad about how you treat your parents. <laughs> um, and it's like one of those movies you watch like, oh God, I, I gotta I gotta call my mom and dad more. I should I should be better to them. And, um, and the reason I, I saw it was because almost a year ago uh, today, I saw Columbus, which was the movie starring John Cho uh, and Haley Lou Richardson, directed by a Korean-American director named uh, Kogunada. And I went to see it uh, in which he did a Q&A. And he mentioned that like his biggest influence was Yasujiro Ozu. And I, I have Filmstruck, which is a great streaming service in which you get the, the Criterion Collection and the Turner Classic Movies. And, and lo and behold, it was on there, so I watched it. And it's a it's a long, slow movie, but it's it's still just riveting. It just flies by. You want to just keep watching it. Uh, and I think it's I think what's important about this movie, I think, is you get a sense that like like Asian like contemporary Asian culture is not just something that happened in the last ten years or you know the last twenty years with you know things like K-pop or J-pop or like Taiwanese dramas. It, you know, it goes back as long as you know, you, you think of something like French New Wave cinema. Well, like there was like, you know, Japanese cinema happened before that, too. And it, it just gives you a greater sense of like continuity and just like deep roots. And, and that's a movie I highly recommend. You can get it on Filmstruck, which is, again, a service I, I highly recommend as well. And just to get a sense of kind of like classic uh, Asian uh, like pop culture. Have you guys any of you guys seen this one? Yeah, um, this is Anthony. I think that. One thing I'll add to this mention of Tokyo Story is that I mean, it's such an important film. If you ever take any class on like any Asian cinema, not just Japanese cinema, Yasujiro Ozu, Tokyo Story will probably come up. Like this guy is an inspiration and like 
kind of a, a root of the tree that blossoms in terms of Asian cinema. You have so many directors both in East Asia as well as outside of East Asia actually who draw inspiration from Ozu's work. Like you have Taiwanese directors like um, you know, Ho Xiaoxian and Edward Yang, in fact, of EE, which I think we mentioned before, um, their styles are very inspired by Ozu's. You have um, an Iranian director, one of the most famous ones, I think like Abbas Kiristami, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, who made a film inspired by Ozu. So this guy is like <laughs> a really big deal and really shows that, hey, it wasn't just, as, as Oxford was saying, it wasn't just the French people who are making these films in black and white and pioneering new artistic direction. You know, there are people in Asia like Ozu who were doing that as well. He's noted for pioneering a very distinctive style in terms of storytelling, cinematography, how he composed each one of the shots um, and, you know, camera movement or rather lack thereof so if if you're trying to get into the cinematic side of things like this is definitely a really really good recommendation here yeah and i feel like he should be way more well known than he is like even like i consider myself a pretty big film buff and even i hadn't really heard of him until i uh you know this guy koganata talked of him and i and you know like you know, like every uh, like most Americans know, like a, like you know about Akira Kurosawa, but like his movies are all about samurai, so it's kind of like flashy, just you know when you imagine them. But like you watch like Tokyo Story or like Early Spring, they're very like slow uh, movies about very ordinary people, so it doesn't have that just kind of like pizzazz. There's no like elevator pitch really. Like if I told you the story of Tokyo Story, you might think, well, why the hell would I want to watch that, right? Well, like a depressing movie about old people realizing their children are kind of like disappointing. <laughs> I I totally second that. I mean, it's 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 interesting to see you know just how authentic movies like Tokyo Story and, and the other movies that Ozu has made are like he really strive for authenticity his whole mantra I think was in trying to accurately depict regular life for people in post-war Japan and you know, the start of the economic bubble and and what that was doing to family dynamics or just daily life as people experienced it in a very direct manner so there's no big sensational moments and big fights or whatnot it's a really good it's a pure way to look at in a sense life as you know asia represented by japan here industrialized modernized in in you know, whatever way you want to describe that yeah and teen so what's your recommendation uh, well, before I get to mine, uh, I want to point out, though, that that, that whole uh, little uh, exchange that you both had is is fascinating because it, it you guys are some serious film geeks now. <laughs> and I'm like, that's important because one of the, you know, we talk a lot about um, representation of Asians in media and how many Asian Asians are there on screen or behind the camera and stuff. But one thing that rarely gets said is how many Asian critics there are. And that's actually, to me, actually, it's very important because uh, the, that critical, the, the, the level of criticism is where you kind of pull out a lot of the, the meaning and the, and, the, and the interpretation of these things. And there's very, very few Asian-American critics um, out there. Uh, and, and, 
you know. Yeah, no, I, I just want to add to that. Like, a funny example that I saw, Richard had mentioned Wolf Warrior 2 as one of his recommendations before. And I was reading this review of there was a you know, Caucasian-American critic who was writing about that and just totally trashing the movie. And it was funny to see because, like, in a way, it's simply your regular American foreign intervention action flick, but made by Chinese. And he was pointing out a lot of flaws and having a lot of beef with the movie about it being, you know, nationalistic, jingoistic, which it is, but, like, you never hear those criticisms as strongly voiced in even something like Avengers or Captain America, right? Captain America is, like, American (laughs) person going abroad and trying to uphold justice in the American perception of things. So uh, I think that... Yeah, Lockheed Martin was uh, co-marketing, co-branding uh, Iron Man. Ah, well, that's Star, that's Star not surprising. Star. Yeah, I, you know, after yeah. watching Iron Man, I'm like, yeah, so the moral of the story here is that if you want to be a superhero, you just need to have your own defense contractor. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, I remember, and, and I got very angry at my friends for taking me to see this, but I saw Man of Steel uh, several years ago, and at the end, like, like uh, Superman is like is interacting with the uh, like U.S. military. It's like it's like you know Superman is their WMD, right? <laughs> so it's like, um, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree. I think that's totally the case, right? Um, we we do we do need more Asian Americans talking about films, and not not just Asian films, but also Hollywood films and stuff. Um, and also, uh, now that Oxford, you brought up um, uh, Columbus. I don't, I'm not sure how people can find that movie right now, but I, I saw it too, and I like strongly recommend that movie. I think I thought it was fantastic, um, and and him mentioning um, his influences makes sense now that I think about it. And it's a beautiful movie. Anyway, uh, so the movie I want to recommend is um, Black Coal Thin Ice. Uh, the Chinese name is Bai Ri Yanhuo, and it, I think it's available on Netflix. So this is an easy one to watch. Um, it's a, it's a, I think it came out in 2017. It's a, it's a Chinese film noir. It's a, it's a neo noir. Um, it takes place in Heilongjiang in the sort of north of China in coal country. So it has a very gritty, it takes place in the winter. It has a very gritty, cold, dark feel. Um, very, uh, I think it won the Golden Bear at the, at the, at the top prize at the Berlin International Film Festival. And if you go look, at the winners of the Berlin Festival, it's 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 a that's a huge accomplishment, uh, and I think Berlin may be to me one of the most impressive uh, awards to win. And like, it, you, someone should sit down and just watch all the Berlin winners. If you just forget the Oscars, um, <clears throat> it's amazing. And the reason I like it, I mean, it's it's a classic, you know, film noir in every sense. It has the femme fatale um, played by uh, Guilin May, who's uh, amazing beautiful great actress um the the protagonist is played uh by uh Liao Fan who's i i don't know if he it seems like he's making more of a name for himself now in China from what i see but he's you know he's so he's just so great he's like he's funny he's weird he's intense uh just amazing actor and the reason i i recommend this movie in particular is just because i'm a huge film noir fan um, it's hard to see neo-noir done well. Americans do it. Amer- I mean, the peak of noir to me was really American noir. Uh, but, but the neo-noir stuff to me has always been overwrought. And they've, they've always tried to 
you know, they, 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 they try they try to recreate the past with like janky language and stuff, and it just doesn't fit. This movie seems very natural. Um, and it's just the side, this underbelly, the, the underbelly of this sort of uh, border town in China. And it talks about crime and it talks about, um, you know, just sort of that kind of life. And uh, without getting more in, into it, definitely go watch it. It's easy, it's easy to find. So Black Hole Thin Ice. Yeah, this is Anthony. One thing that I'll point out since, Tin, you did mention a Chinese title is like as we review a lot of these Chinese movies at Cinemascapist, at least for Richard and I who, who know Chinese, it's fascinating to see the contrast between the Chinese titles of things and the English titles of things. In this case, the more direct translation of like Bai Zhi Yin Huo is like Daylight Fireworks, which is not Black Coal Thin Ice. And from what I had read, that was actually supposed to be an intentional artistic decision there where like the Chinese title is supposed to represent fantasy. The American title was supposed to represent like gritty reality where like the movie literally is like, it's in a cold town. So there's black coal and it's really cold. So there's thin ice. Um, but there are like, there, there's an interesting scene at the end without giving too much away where there are daylight fireworks. And it just made me think a bit about like, what is lost or gained in translation for a lot of these movies? And like to add another example, American Dreams in China, the that's the English title. The Chinese title is more directly translated as like just Chinese partners. <laughs> so it's it's less appealing directly to like the whole American dream aspect of things and perhaps more to like a social network kind of aspect. Um, but that's just a, a note to add in terms of translation and you know, really like a value add that I, I would say having some linguistic and cultural context allows you to get more of the films as a result um, through examples like this. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, Tin, you brought up like neo-noir just done really badly, like too imitative of the past. You guys ever see this piece of shit movie called Gangster Squad? I yeah I yes oh is that God, with it was um, so bad. Uh, it has Ryan yeah. Gosling Emma Stone Josh Brolin yeah and, it's like a Mickey Cohen movie uh, like yeah it's about yeah Mickey Cohen. and Sean Penn playing Mickey Cohen oh that was like yeah. one of the worst movies I've ever seen I think I saw it on an airplane I think I once saw the trailer and I you know the cast just on paper looks great and it's kind of like this. Um, you know, they're, they're like in like 1940s Hollywood and you know that like scene at the end of uh, LA Confidential, one of my favorite movies, great movie, uh, but you know, they have that shootout at the end. Is it like almost like a whole movie that's done like that, but more, kind of in like a action movie comic book style, but oh my God, it was so bad. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's just everything becomes this like cosplay homage to, you know, it's just so overwrought and everyone's, you know, everyone's a wise, wise cracking you know, uh, hard drinking, Tommy gun slinging kind of guy. Yeah, it just collapses uh, yeah, into self parody. Yeah, no, no. I think I think this movie really again and and um, Anthony, I think like you know this movie uh, among among all the others that were that we've talked about, you know, they all have, uh, you know, they're all made I think specifically to address something or explore something that's actually happening in real life, right? In this case, it's it's talking about. 
um, you know, crime in in coal country, which is which is something I think I think there, there's there's more famous movies about this particular topic than than this one. But it's these aren't just exercises in filmmaking and like, oh, look what I can do. Oh, the Chinese can make noirs too. No, this is like very specific. It seems to time and place. Um, it's you know that I think all the movies are like that. The ones that we've mentioned are very much about that. So that's you know something about asian movies that i think is uh makes them makes them worth watching at this particular time yeah this is anthony i would second that point around how black hole thin ice i think is is i'm not sure if it's based on real events but it certainly is something that i feel channels a lot of like the the brutality and the the darkness of living and, and working in, in Heilongjiang in, in the northeast of China. And there's a lot of, as Tien mentioned, other movies that really talk about this sort of, you know, living on, not necessarily the margins, but really like this this brutal dark life. And I, I would recommend a director, Jia Zhangke, who's, um, who's a, he, he's not making movies in, in Heilongjiang specifically, but in a different province, um, I think Shanxi, where, where they do a lot of cool stuff as well. Uh, and he, he has a bunch of great movies that are also noir-ish um, and speak to a lot of social issues going on in China. Yeah, yeah. there's also Blind Shaft, uh, the, I guess the movie that made Wang Baochang's uh, career. That I, I can't recommend it just because it's so depressing, but it's it's... <laughs> it's like some of these can get super depressing. So, <laughs> all right, uh, we're approaching an hour. So, Anthony, do you have any uh, closing thoughts you'd like to share before we end this? Yeah, well, thank you for having Richard and I on this podcast. It was great to be able to talk about Asian films, especially for an Asian American audience. It's really heartening to see interest from you know, Plan A inside of this, and I feel that. Again, going back to the original purpose of Cinema Escapist, being able to explore and connect the world through film and a cinematic lens, we hope that these films can really connect Asian Americans to maybe their immediate heritage or just this part of the world that I think is really rising in the 21st century and is important for us just to know about as world citizens. Yeah, never has it been easier and more affordable to access all this uh, cultural output so we really owe it to ourselves to take advantage of it yeah um so yeah i just want to thank anthony and uh, richard who unfortunately is no longer with us he is in a better place <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you guys for joining us we've been trying to make this happen for a while but you know it's like uh, you know there's a lot of us we're in like different you know parts of the earth so i'm very glad it happened we hope to have you guys again sometime we can talk. I mean, there's so many more movies we can talk about. So, yeah, look forward to talking more. Really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Escape from Plan A. We were joined tonight by our friends at Cinema Escapist, Anthony and Richard. Uh, you can go to Cinema Escapist at cinemaescapist.com. I mean, you all know how to spell, right? Uh, and if you like our podcast, please go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you like us, give us five stars and leave us a comment if you really like us. And if you want to read our great articles, go to planamag.com. So again, we'll see you next week. Have a great day or night, everyone. Bye.